This lesson is entitled, The King's Confrontation with Satan, and it is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but interestingly, it isn't recorded by John. And don't ask me the reason for that. I don't know, but it isn't found in John. We're going to be looking at four subdivisions. We're going to, first of all, look at the desert place where the Lord faced his temptation. We'll talk about the divine purpose for the temptation. Then we'll look at the doctrines of peccability and impeccability. And how many of you have ever heard of those doctrines before? I asked yesterday, and there was only one person in there, and that was because she had been through this study before. <laughs> but it sounds complicated. It really isn't. But that might be the only time this morning that you'll really have to sort of put your thinking caps on and um, buckle down with me as we talk about those doctrines. And then finally, we'll talk about the devil's plot as we look at the three temptations, which I have called the temptation of appetite, the temptation of ambition, and the temptation of avarice or greed. So let's begin by looking at Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to flip over to Mark. Now, Mark only gives us this account in two verses. He is very, Mark is very succinct in everything he says. So we'll look at Mark 1, if you want to get a finger placed over in Mark, which I need to do too. We'll look at verses uh, 12 and 13, and then I also want to read Luke 4, verses 1 and 2. So there are going to be three different places we're going to be looking at to begin our lesson. All right, Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Okay, you would be hungry too if you went without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's look at Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. Mark 1, 12 and 13, it says, and immediately, remember Mark loves that word, <laughs> immediately or straight away. And immediately, immediately what? Immediately following the baptism of the Lord, which we looked at last week. Immediately following the baptism, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. That's all Mark says about the temptation of Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Luke 4. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Luke 4. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Okay, if you'll go back to Matthew, I'm going to primarily be spending our time this morning in Matthew because Bible scholars believe he gave the three temptations in the right chronological order. Now, the place where Christ, the second Adam, you know Jesus is referred to as the last Adam or the second Adam in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The place where he met and vanquished the great tempter Satan stands in very obvious contrast with the place where the first Adam was overcome by Satan's deceit and Satan's craftiness, his subtleness. The first Adam confronted Satan in an ideal utopia, which was referred to as what? The Garden of Eden. Whereas the last Adam, Jesus Christ, confronted Satan in a barren and fruitless wilderness. The first Adam was not alone in his wonderful garden, was he? God had created for him a perfect helpmeet. At least she was perfect until <laughs> she got tempted. 
Um, but God, God, Jesus Christ, in the wilderness was utterly alone. He had no other human companion with him. The animals which had encompassed the first Adam were tame and gentle because, of course, this was before the fall. They came to him in peace. They came to him in submission, and he named them. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus in the wilderness, we are told in Mark's account, verse uh, 13, was with the wild beasts because um, the animals after the fall were no longer in submission to man, especially the wild ones. I imagine he was even in the wilderness with some vipers. Remember, we talked about the vipers. So these contrasts and others, which we could name, serve us as biblical proof that spiritual and moral failures are not caused by man's circumstances or by man's environment. You know, sociologists would have us believe that if man's environment was merely cleaned up, you know, if we could just clean up the environment where this, the, the inner city and all, et cetera, and uh, if man is just was, would be properly educated, then all crime and violence and injustice would stop. But does history prove that theory? History absolutely does not <laughs> prove that theory. Paradise was lost in a pristine garden of plenty, and it was regained in a wilderness of great poverty. In spite of everything favorable in a perfect environment, everything favorable to do good, what did Adam and Eve do? They disobeyed. They did bad. They failed. And in spite of every circumstance to do evil in a very imperfect environment, Jesus Christ, as we'll see this morning, stood totally firm. No amount of cleansing a man's external setting will ever change him. It's his heart not his habitat, which needs, needs to be made clean. And that can only happen how? Through the new birth, right? Being born again in Jesus Christ. So it's the heart of man that's the issue. And this is made um, evident to us when we read the book of Revelation and we find out that even in the millennial kingdom, where Christ himself is reigning, and there can be no overt sin, that once Satan is loosed after being bound for a thousand years, what happens? Many, many people choose to follow him in one last attempt to rebel against Jesus Christ. So it's not our habitat, it's the heart. The Judean wilderness, and I don't know if you're going to really be able to see this map too well, but uh, the Judean wilderness was and still is hot, barren, and desolate. It extended from, I should have a little marker here, but there's Bethabara. Remember, that's where John was baptizing when Jesus Christ came to be baptized. It's at the southern end of the Jordan River, just a little bit north of the Dead Sea here. That's Bethabara right there, or where they think it was. The Judean wilderness, where Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted of Satan, went from Bethabara down south almost to Jerusalem. It's sort of this area right here. Um, what direction is that? That's uh, north northwest of the um, of the Dead Sea in that area. It, it was about 35 miles long and it was about 15 miles wide. And it consists yet today of yellow hot sand, sharp jagged rocks, and blistered crumbling limestone. Its hills are like giant uh, steep dust heaps. A actually, they say there is nowhere in all of Israel that Jesus could have gone to be more isolated and less comfortable than in the wilderness of Judea. Now, it's interesting to find, as Mark 1.12 tells us, that um, 
He was driven by who into the wilderness? He was driven by the Spirit. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Now, Mark's use of the word immediately and his use of the word driven tell us that the temptation of Jesus Christ was urgently important for for Christ at this particular time of his public ministry. And where are we in relation to his public ministry? Right, we're right at the initiation of his ministry. So it's very important that he was driven into the, uh, to the wilderness at this particular time. And it's interesting to look over in Matthew's account and Luke's account because there the wording is that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So on the one hand, we have the word driven. He was driven in by the Spirit. And the other one says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Both those words tell us that this was a divine appointment. Look at, are you in Matthew? Look at Matthew 4, 1. What's it say? Then, the Jesus, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted of the devil. <laughs> so this was not the result of any disobedience on the part of Jesus Christ. He was not tempted by Satan because he had wandered off on his own, you know, away from the will of his father. He wasn't tempted by Satan because he had disobeyed in any, in, in any manner or form the word of God or the will of God. He was both led and driven there by way of God the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke 4, 1 also tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit. If you check out all these little words that sometimes we could miss when we can compare it, when we can compare the the four different gospel accounts. So he not only followed, rightly followed the Holy Spirit's direction to go into the wilderness, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Okay? Now, why is this important for us to discuss? Well, for one thing, it lets us know that Christ was not tempted by evil because he was disobedient. That wasn't the reason he was tempted. And that's a very important fact for us to understand so that we, again, can demonstrate or do demonstrate the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Also, this tells us that just because a believer, you and I, for example, are on the path of obedience. Was Jesus on the path of obedience? Yes, he was driven by the Spirit and he was led by the Spirit. So it was absolutely imperative that he go into the wilderness. He was on the path of obedience. So just because you and I might be on the path of obedience doesn't mean that we will necessarily be exempt from trials and testings and tribulations, right? Obedience to God's will and God's word will, we do admit, it will remove any unnecessary temptations and trials and testings. But it won't remove all trials and testings and um, temptations because some of them have been God-appointed for our own good. Remember this. It's not a sin to be tempted, but it is a sin to, to yield or fall to that temptation. But it isn't a sin to be tempted. The person who has been on the path of obedience will find that Fighting off the temptation is going to be a whole lot easier than if you're not on the path of obedience. That's, that's a given, right? Well, all three synoptic gospel writers tell us that Christ was in the wilderness doing what? He was fasting, so we can assume he was also communing with his father. He was fasting and praying for a total of how many days? Forty days. Now, the number 40 in the scripture appears repeatedly. 
And it um, is associated in the scripture with trials and testing. It's the number of, t- uh, you know, the biblical number for trials or testing. It's somebody, I'm going to give you a bunch of examples from scripture, but somebody yesterday said, oh, is that why we go through midlife crisis in the trial at age 40? I, hmm, I didn't think about that one. <laughs> that was good. But 40 is the number of trial and testing. The, the greatest trial to ever come upon this world happened um, back in Noah's days with a flood that lasted how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Moses spent 40 years of testing and trial where? In, a, in the wilderness, in the desert, in a desert. Um, 40 days on Mount Sinai he spent. Israel spied out the land for 40 days. And because she came up with a bad report, she wandered in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. Goliath taunted Israel for a total of 40 days before David came along and took care of him. Jonah preached to Nineveh for a total of 40 days before the Ninevites repented. And Elijah was in the wilderness for a total of 40 days. On and on it goes. So it is 40 is the number for trial and testing. Mark's account of the Lord's wilderness temptation, as I said, is very short, very succinct. But it does tell us something which the other two gospel accounts didn't fill us in on. Mark's use of the verb tempted is given in the, uh, a verb tense which indicates that it was a continual tempting of Satan by Satan of Christ. So in other words, during the, the, whole, the first 39 days, Satan was there tempting Christ. And what he did is, of course, Christ resisted. We don't know what all those temptations were. But on the 40th day, when the Lord, physically speaking, was very weak from uh, not having eaten for 40 days, that is when Mark and Luke give us the, the grand finale you know, temptation in the three that we'll be looking at. But Mark tells us that during the whole 40 days, he was continuously being tempted. Now, you know, the Lord's uh, baptism had been a very blessed experience for him. Remember, we said it was a climactic and a dramatic time for both John and the Lord Jesus. It was an experience for Jesus, which not only included the dipping, but the dove and the declaration. (laughs) You remember when heaven opened up and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. After the Lord, one man, one commentator pointed out that after the Lord was visited by a dove from heaven, he was visited by a devil from hell. This is a warning to you and I, because many, many times, when do our temptations come to us? Right after a major blessing or a a major uh, victory for the Lord Jesus Christ. Often we find that those who are praised by God, just as Jesus had been from his father, will then shortly thereafter be pursued by the devil. Those whom God approves, Satan attacks. After receiving his great testimony from heaven, the Lord Jesus was then faced with his great temptation from hell. So we had, first of all, the dipping the dove and the declaration, and now we will be looking at the desert, the devil, and the deception. And we find this pattern throughout scripture, by the way. So, you know, we need to be on guard. David, after many, many successes, that's when David fell. You know, same thing with um, Elijah. After he had that great victory against 400 prophets of Baal, just with the snap of a jaw from one woman, one woman, the very same day he fell. So we need to be careful and not let our guard down, as David and Elijah did, you know, especially after we have had some kind of a spiritual victory. We need to um, be sure to be uh, praying 
especially after some kind of a success for the Lord. Not personal success, but some kind of a victory. We really, really need to be praying. And what was the Lord Jesus doing? Remember when, he was, when, when John was bathing him in water? He was bathing himself in prayer. I mean, he, he knew that shortly after there would be that testing by the devil. And during those first 39 years, when he was fasting, he was also probably 39 days, not 39 years. <laughs> Wait, I don't think he could go 39 years without food. <laughs> but during those first 39 days, well, the whole time he was fasting, and we can assume, of course, that he was praying. But we need to pray, so we're prepared for that next fiery dart from Satan, which will surely come our way. You know, another time when you can almost be guaranteed to um, have be faced with temptation by Satan is uh, at the initiation of a new service for the Lord. You know, whenever someone steps out and tries to move forward for the Lord or, you know, begin, like begin a new Bible study or, or you make a New Year's resolution this year, I am really every day going to faithfully do my quiet time and I'm going to come every Tuesday to ladies' Bible study. That's another time when Satan will really try to ensnare us with a variety of, of temptations. And that's where we are in the Lord's life. He's at the initiation of his public ministry. And so this is the time Satan wants to nip it in the bud and prevent him from completing the work that he came to, to do. Of course, we know throughout the Old Testament Satan was always after that, wasn't he? To try to prevent Jesus from even coming. When he was two years old, he tried to kill him through Herod. And now here at the very beginning of his ministry, he really tries to get him to sin so that he would not be able to go to the cross for us. So if we're, you know, just going along with the flow and we're doing nothing for the Lord, Satan's probably going to leave us alone. You know, or if we're just riding on the fence between the church and the world, we're kind of where he wants us to be. We're not being very effective, so he'll leave us alone. But the, begin, the, the moment we start moving forward to get closer to the Lord and begin to work for him... We can be guaranteed there's going to soon be a knock on our door by temptation. Okay, let's move on and look at the divine purpose. I've already read the scriptures, so we don't need to review those. Again, it's very critical that we thoroughly understand the fact that it was Satan and not God who tempted Jesus Christ. Even though God the Holy Spirit was the one who led Jesus Christ into the wilderness and drove him into the wilderness, it was neither God the Father nor God the Holy Spirit who tempted Jesus Christ. Who did the tempting? Satan. Satan, not the Lord. Now that is not to say that God didn't know what Satan was going to do. Because God, of course, knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. And it even said there that he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. <laughs> but I do want to clarify the fact that God doesn't tempt anyone. It tells us in James 1.13, God does not tempt man, anyone, including his son. He doesn't tempt with evil, period. He permitted, of course, everything that happens is by way of God's permissive will, God permitted Satan into the wilderness, just as he permitted Satan to come into the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, Satan cannot do anything without God's approval. God allowed this to happen in both situations. Why? Because he had his own divine reasons, his own divine purposes in both of those situations. Whoops. Now, what were his purposes? 
Why would God the Father allow Satan to put Christ to the test? Well, the answer lies in the fact that the temptation, you see, would demonstrate the sinlessness of the Son of God and thereby prove his moral right to be the Savior of the world. Christ's victory over temptation would reveal the purity, the holiness of his person, as well as his power over sin, right? And his power over the devil. His power over temptation, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Therefore, what Satan intended as a means to lead Christ into disobedience to God, and therefore disqualified to be our Savior, what, what Satan intended as, as that means, um, that God the Father purposely used to demonstrate his son's holiness and his son's sinlessness, his son's worthiness to be our savior. And this is also how God works in the lives of all of his children. We as believers cannot be tempted in a way which God cannot use for our own good and his own glory, but there is a condition. (laughs) If, if we will follow Christ's example of how to be victorious over that temptation. You know, obviously God isn't going to use it for good if we yield to the temptation and give in. But if we follow the Lord's example in how to conquer temptation, God will use that temptation, that external temptation, for our own good, uh, for our own spiritual growth, and ultimately, of course, for his own victory. So in order to be able to follow Christ's example and be victorious over uh, sin and temptation, it becomes important for us to see how he did indeed conquer each one of the three basic temptations of Satan. All right, but before we get into that, we're going to discuss now. This is where you put the thinking caps on for a while. Are you getting warmer? I think with all the bodies in here, it's starting to feel warm. Oh, you turned it up. We're going to look at the doctrines of peccability and impeccability. Now, the the basic issue between these two doctrines is very simple. Big words, but they have simple um, meanings. Those who teach the doctrine, and by the way, this was a big, hot, controversial issue back in church history. Those who, who believed in the doctrine of the peccability of Christ versus those who believed in the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ, the church was really divided. On this issue, and it's interesting to me that today most people don't even know what it is, <laughs> but back in the Middle Ages, it was a big issue. Okay, those who teach the doctrine of the peccability of Jesus Christ say that he could have sinned. You know, as Adam sinned, Jesus Christ in the wilderness or at any other time during his uh, three and a half years or thirty-three years of uh, life here on planet Earth, he could have sinned. That is the teaching of the doctrine of peccability, whereas those who teach the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ state that he could not have sinned. No matter how much he was tempted, he could not have sinned. Um, Now, I do want to make this clear. As far as conservative Bible scholars are concerned, both sides, those who teach the doctrine of the peccability of Christ and those who teach the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ, both sides within conservatism, teach that he did not sin. Regardless of whether he could have or couldn't have, they do teach he did not sin. All right, make sure you understand that. Now, liberals, of course, say that he did sin in all sorts of crazy things, 
having that affair with Mary Magdalene and all sorts of things. But anyway, conservatives agree he did not sin. Well, the ultimate solution really to this uh, controversy lies in the Lord's unique dual nature. Not only was he human, he was also divine, right? He is the unique God-man. Each of the Lord's two natures had its own will. And yet, every ultimate decision that Jesus Christ made was in submission to and in harmony with his divine will. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, not my will. See, what was he speaking of there? His human will. His flesh didn't want to go to the cross, right? So not my will, but thine will be done. So each of his two natures had its own will, yet his human nature was always in submission to and in harmony with his divine nature. Christ's human nature was temptable, and we know that from our own human experience. His human nature might have desired to do that which is contrary to the will of God, which is, again, of course, what you and I experience every day of our lives. However, in Christ, you see, who is the unique God-man, his human nature was subservient to his divine nature, and his human nature could never act independently of his divine nature. God, we know, there's some things God cannot do. One thing God cannot do is sin. God cannot sin. And therefore, you know, Christ is God. Christ's divine nature, which could not sin, and which overruled his human nature, made it impossible for Jesus Christ to sin. Therefore, my teaching to you is that uh, Christ was impeccable. He could not sin. Now, since James 1.13, which I've already mentioned, states that God cannot be tempted with evil, someone might ask, if you're thinking ahead here, well, how could Christ, the very Son of God, have been tempted to do evil? You know, it says God cannot be tempted with evil. Then how was Jesus Christ tempted to do evil? Can someone who is impeccable, someone who is unable to sin, even be tempted to sin? In other words, is it possible to do the impossible? Well, some scholars have have argued this. I mean, they've gone back and forth on this. They've said that a person who cannot sin cannot even be tempted to sin. Well, of course, all of us are, I should say, a person, Jesus Christ, with a capital P, because we all can sin. But uh, with regard to this question, I, I thought one man named William Shedd really best answered this matter by giving us an analogy. He said there, that that is no more correct to say, in other words, um, that a person who cannot sin can't be tempted to sin, all right? He says that is no more correct to say than to say that an army which cannot be conquered cannot be attacked, right? Do you get the analogy? That works for me. It did the trick. All right, and Hebrews 4.15 reaffirms the truth of, of that statement by telling us that Christ, who is now in heaven, you know, as our high priest, he can, under, he can understand, he can empathize, he can sympathize with you and I. Why? Because, right, he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. 
that Hebrews verse says that, yes, Christ was tempted. So someone who cannot sin can still be tempted to sin. He was tempted, but, of course, he did not sin. So going back, just kind of in a little review here, how, on the one hand, could the Son of God not be tempted, as it says in James 1.13, and on the other hand, be tempted in all points like as we are. Again, I reiterate, as far as Jesus Christ was concerned, as his natural human side was concerned, both physically and mentally, he was subject to all forms of human temptation. Except, and I have to say from the external, okay? Not internally. He was never tempted from any evil which sprung up from within him, such as, you know, lusts, lusts of that sort. Because why? Because he did not inherit from his father, Adam, I mean, uh, Adam, from uh, Joseph, what was his father? He didn't inherit from Joseph because Joseph wasn't his blood father, and then we talked about the blood situation even with Mary, but he, he did not inherit the Adamic sin nature. So he, didn't, he was not tempted. Notice, it's really interesting to notice, because I started looking at that verse in James 1.13. It says, God cannot be tempted with evil, but God could be tempted by evil, and that's exactly what happened in the wilderness. He was tempted externally by evil, but he wasn't tempted from within with evil. All right? There's a distinct difference there. If, his, if the Lord's human nature had been unsustained by his divine nature, as was the case with Adam. Now, remember, Adam was also born without the Adamic sin nature, right? He was born. I mean, he wasn't born. He was created perfectly sinless. Um, but, so if Jesus Christ, like Adam, was not sustained by a divine nature as well as a human nature, then he could have sinned. Like Adam sinned. You see, Adam was also sinless, but he didn't have the divine nature to uh, back him up and prevent him from sinning. But this possibility for Jesus to sin was completely removed, of course, because of the presence of his divine nature. Um, So the God-man, Jesus Christ, the human deity, was again, I repeat, impeccable. Yet because he was tempted, he does understand You know, from his human side, he can empathize and understand and sympathize with you and I because he was tempted from the outside by evil. So while his human nature was temptable, like as we are, his divine nature was not temptable. And because his divine nature was sovereign over his human nature, he was impeccable and he could not have sinned. So then you ask, well, why did Satan even try? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Why did he do a lot of things? You know, Satan is always trying to change the word of God. He knows what it says, that he will be defeated at the end, but he's always trying to change that. And so I guess even understanding probably that Jesus wouldn't fall to his temptation, he had to give it a shot anyway, and he did his, you know, the whole, his whole life, Christ's whole life. All right, the devil's plot. Let's, that'll move us right into that subject. We're not told in what form the devil appeared in the wilderness confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ. How did he appear in the Garden of Eden? Right, as a walking, talking serpent, whatever that looked like. He must have been glorious to behold. He didn't frighten uh, Eve, and, and he apparently was very beautiful. 
But uh, we don't know what form he appeared in the wilderness. What we do know is that his attack was personal and it was direct. They spoke to one another. They had communication, you know, a direct conversation with each other. They moved around with one another, as we'll see. Jesus, uh, Satan moved the Lord to, the, to Jerusalem, and then he moved him to a high temple. So they moved with one another. They talked with one another. Jesus even addressed him personally as Satan. What does Satan mean? In both Hebrew and uh, Greek, Satan means adversary. All right, so those... Um, those who teach that Satan is some kind of an impersonal force, oops, I don't want to hide that again, or an evil influence and that there isn't a literal Satan, go contrary to what the scripture would tell us. The scripture tells us that he was a being, a, a, he was personified, or is. He's still alive and well on planet Earth, you know that, don't you? He is an evil being. Of course, he is a created evil being with vast power. The denial, now there are a lot of people within Christendom who, do not, who deny the reality of a literal devil, of a literal Satan, and they say it's just foolishness. Of course, he doesn't look like this. You know, he disguises himself even as an angel of light. Uh, but they say it's foolishness to believe in the reality of a devil. But when they do that, they are actually blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, What? How do you get that? Think about it. I, I had to take logic in college. Did you ever take logic? You know, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's really simple. Just think this through here. If there is no literal Satan, then the only other way to teach Jesus' wilderness experience here is to teach that he, Jesus, was being tempted by his own evil thoughts and desires and by the wickedness of his own heart, right? If he wasn't really having a confrontation with a literal being, Satan, then all these temptations were coming from within because there was nobody else out there with him. He was alone. So if he was being tempted from within himself, this makes him sinful. If Christ is sinful, we have no Savior, so if there is no real Satan, there is no real Savior, okay? But the word of God, the good news is, I know it's not very good to say that there is a literal Satan, but there, there is. <laughs> the, the really good news is that, that there is also a literal Savior. You know, you either have to take the Bible at its word and believe what it says or throw it out completely, but don't try to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. It doesn't say Satan was an impersonal force. You know, like Darth Vader or something. Well, Darth Vader, you know, the force be with you or against you. It doesn't say that. It, it says he was a literal being, is a literal being. Now, as we consider each of the fiery darts of temptation which the devil so cleverly shot at the Lord Jesus, we're going to find that they deal with the three basic areas of humanity in which all men are tempted to sin. And those three areas extend to the physical plane, the mental plane, and the what? Spiritual plane. The Apostle John, in 1 John 2.16, referred to them as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, I am calling them... <laughs> The physical plane, appetite, the um, 
the mental plane, ambition, and the spiritual plane, avarice. All right, so we're going to be looking at the temptation to enjoy things by serving self, that's appetite, the temptation to achieve things by testing God, ambition, and then the temptation to obtain things by worshiping Satan. And I've called that avarice or greed. I wanted to stay with the A's. Let's look, first of all, now at Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4, the temptation to enjoy things by serving self. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 of Matthew 4. But he, oh, let's see, no, that's wrong. Uh, 3, and when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he, Christ, answered and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It says exactly the same thing over in Luke, so I won't read that. Satan's finale attack here on the Lord, you know, the 40th day, begins with the words, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made into bread. Now, the word translated if is given in the first class condition, which means that there really here is an assumption of knowledge. So in other words, he's saying, since you are the son of God, Satan knows who Jesus Christ is. The demons know, and they even have better sense than a lot of people because they tremble. He knew who he was. So he's really saying, since you are the son of God. Now, after 40 days, of course, the Lord Jesus would be feeling acute hunger because he was a man. And he, um, he, he did hunger. And so Satan made his first approach at temptation through the physical plane. He used the realm of legitimate appetite. And his, his method, of course, Satan is very, very subtle. His method was very subtle in that he came across as trying to look like a benefactor here. He said, in effect, I'm trying to help you here. Jesus. I'm suggesting that you simply use your power as the Son of God to turn these useless stones into something that can help you out. You know, you're hungry? What different? Who's it going to hurt if you just turn these stones that are lying here doing nobody any good, if you turn them into bread and eat so you can eliminate your hunger? You know, you've done your thing. You've been a good boy for 40 days and 40 nights. You've fasted and prayed. And now feed yourself. Go ahead. Now, the desire for food is not sinful, is it? Now, eating a whole big Sam's box of chocolate-covered raisins is sinful in one day. That's definitely... (laughs) I didn't do it in one day. It took me two. But um, (laughs) overeating is a sin, and that's called the sin of what? Gluttony. And there are some food disorders, such as anorexia and bulimia. Those sort of things are sinful, but the basic desire for chocolate-covered raisins (laughs) is not sinful. Of course, you know, it's a God-given natural thing to eat. We need to eat so we keep our bodies fueled. Food, bread, is our physical sustenance, Uh, just as this word is our spiritual sustenance, right? So the whole point here is that his temptation, of course, was to induce Jesus to perform an act in a manner which would be contrary to complete dependence on his father, on God his father. Satan wanted Jesus to act independently of God in order to serve his own self-interest. In effect, he was saying, you know, since you're the son of God, you have certain rights. Don't we hear that all the time? Well, you've got your rights. (laughs) Stand up for your rights. You've got rights, and so there's no reason why you shouldn't Go ahead and serve yourself. 
You know, that's just, that's a natural thing that you just have this lust or this, this, uh, this greed or <laughs> this need. You deserve, yeah, you deserve it. Be good to yourself. Uh, so go ahead and gratify your own hunger. Satisfy yourself. Satan uses the same kind of line of reasoning, reasoning with us. He, he used it in the garden, didn't he? With Eve. That was his first approach was through appetite. You know, she looked at that fruit and, and looked good to her. He suggests, Satan suggests to us that our highest good in this life comes from gratifying our own desires. Real happiness comes from being satisfied. You know, if you're not satisfied with that man, get rid of him and get yourself another one. <laughs> okay, I won't encourage you. The implication is that Man is a physical being, you know, and just a physical being, with uh, normal physical appetites, which are meant to be gratified. So, in other words, his implication here is that man does live on, by bread alone, you know. Don't look at the spiritual aspect. Just, just focus on the physical and gratify all those needs. Where does the temptation to evil lie in Satan's suggestion to turn those stones into bread? I mean, we do know, of course, that Jesus was hungry, and he had the right, as the Son of God, to have something to eat. So to understand how turning those stones into bread would have been a sin for Jesus, we need to consider the two requirements which were necessary for Christ to accomplish his redemptive work here on planet Earth. First of all, he had to live his personal life within the limits necessary for man. Secondly, he had to live in perfect dependence upon his Father, God the Father. Now, if Jesus had crossed over either one of those two limits, he would have either ceased to be our, you know, man's ideal brother, or he would have ceased to be God's ideal son. If Christ had used a direct miracle in order to satisfy his own appetite, he would have lifted himself out of the circle and system of humanity, and he would have annulled the terms of his human nature, which had made him one with man. And also, uh, if he had done this, he would no longer have been the ideal son of his father because he would have been acting independently upon the father. He would have been his own provider instead of depending on his father for his provision. Well, Jesus conquered by faith. Of course, and his first recorded victory here, this is his first recorded victory over temptation, which was in a rugged wilderness, was very similar to his last recorded temptation, which was on a rugged cross. Matthew twenty-seven forty, when the Lord was on the cross and he was uh, surrounded by a crowd mocking him and saying, if thou be the son of God, do those words sound familiar? Who was behind that crowd instigating everything? Satan. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. You see, both temptations, his first and his last, at least the first recorded and last recorded, were aimed at getting Jesus to act independently of his father's will and to serve himself. Now, even though the Lord Jesus had something that we do not have, in our battles against temptation, which is a divine nature, we do, if you're born again, we do have the Holy Spirit within us, so we have the possibility through the yielding to the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation. But even though we don't have, per se, you know, we're not 100% God like Jesus Christ was, he did have something which is readily accessible to all of us. He had one offensive weapon, 
And what was that? The Word of God, which I hope everyone in this room has sitting on your lap right now. It's, uh, you know, if he had, if he had used his, his uh, keen intellectual ability to overcome temptation, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? If, we had used, if he had used his incredible genius or his supernatural powers to overcome the devil, every one of us would be in big trouble. But instead, he used a weapon which is simple enough even for a child to use and understand. In cutting the devil's temptations to shreds, he used the only weapon that he ever used, and that was, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In response to each temptation, he said what? It is written. He quoted from God's word. There is power in the word of God. The word of God is quick and powerful, and that word for powerful in Greek is dynami, which means dynamite. There's something about this book. It's a living, breathing, powerful book. When you witness to somebody, don't just use your own words. Use the word of God. That's where the power is. And that's why it's so important for you and I to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against God. Very important to memorize God's word or to always have it with you at least when you're in battle. Now, in responding to Satan's temptation to feed his appetite by turning stones into bread, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy, which is really interesting. All three of his uh, quotes against the devil come from the book of Deuteronomy, which is interesting because that book is a book which governs the walk of God's people. In this first situation, he quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man shall not live by bread alone. Man isn't just a physical being. He doesn't just need physical sustenance. He also needs spiritual sustenance. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This is our spiritual food, the word of God. So Christ demonstrated total obedience to the will of God as it is presented in the written word of God. So with his scriptural answer... From Deuteronomy, he met Satan's first fiery dart very simply. He expressed his utmost confidence in his father, that his father would supply his nourishment. He didn't need to act independently of his father and use his supernatural powers. I mean, if he had used supernatural powers, he would take himself out of our realm, right, as our brother, as human, because we can't do that. We couldn't have turned, we can't turn stones into food to feed ourselves so he would have removed his identity with man if he had done that and of course he would have shown um, disobedience to his father by acting independently of him so he he relied upon his father's uh, time schedule to fulfill his needs and what happened as soon as he was finished uh, defeating satan i don't i don't think we've read this yet but it's at the end of uh, the account, it says that God sent the holy angels to minister unto him. Picture of that. And so God did take care of his son's need in his timing and in his way. Okay, let's move on to look at ambition. And for this one, we're going to look at verses 5 to 7 in Matthew 4. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, 
He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Well, after his first failure, Satan decided he would change his strategy here. Since Jesus had demonstrated such great faith and dependence on his father, Satan was going to try something new. This time, he attempted to force Jesus to actually test his father. So the second temptation was um, focused on the very faith and confidence which Jesus, you see, in the first temptation had uh, demonstrated that he had in his father, in God his father. So failing to tempt the Lord with physical appetite, he now attempts to tempt him with personal ambition. What, the, the, what Satan did somehow or another, and he has great power, somehow he supernaturally transported the Lord and himself to the holy city, which, of course, is Jerusalem, it wasn't that far away from where they were, but they were transported and um, stood him up on a pinnacle of the temple. And from the pin- one of the pinnacles of the temple down to the Kidron Valley below, which would be a 450-foot uh, drop. And then using that same beginning phrase which he had used in his first temptation, how did he begin his temptation? He said, you know, if, if you are the Son of God or since you are the Son of God, uh, as it's written, cast yourself down and, you know, the Lord has said he will, he will save you by sending his angels to catch you. Essentially, that's paraphrase. To make his temptation even more persuasive, notice what Satan did. I mean, this guy is clever. <laughs> he quoted from God's word. Now, we should never, ever, don't ever think that you or I can outquote or outsmart Satan when it comes to the word of God. He has been around a lot longer than, well, we can't outsmart him because we know (laughs) there is no truth in him, but he, he is very, very deceptive and very much smarter than we are in deceptively using the word of God. So we always need to be on our toes um, fighting him, but he has been around long enough to, to probably have memorized the entire scripture by this time. He knows it inside out. And he's the ultimate expert at using it deceptively. As I said, he's had a lot of practice at seducing men by pulling verses out of context. And that's why we have to be so careful when we study God's word that we always see it in a context. Because you pull it out of context and you can make it mean all kinds of things. So he's an expert at doing that. He's an expert at twisting meanings. That's why so many times I tell you what a word means in the original language. Because over years, words even change their meanings. Um, We have to find out what it meant in the original. Also, he's an expert at adding to and taking from God's word. This is how most all cults have started, adding to or taking from. That's why there's such a serious warning at the end of the book, the end of Revelation, about adding to or taking from God's word. That's what he did in the garden, or what he got Eve to do. She did both. She added to and took from God's word. He's uh, had a lot of practice in casting doubts upon God's word and fueling criticism about God's word, even within the church, etc., etc. Now, in his second temptation, Satan used one of his most successful tactics. He misused God's word. Okay? First of all, notice how clever he was. First of all, he imitated. Isn't he also the great counterfeiter? 
He imitated the Lord when he said, it is written. The Lord had just done that, and so now he comes right back at him. Okay, you want to use that sword? I'll use it too. It is written. And then he went on to totally misapply the verses which he quoted. He took Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and he pulled them right up out of their context. And he caused them to appear to mean what they didn't mean at all. And this is exactly what many false teachers and preachers and etc., false uh, prophets have done throughout the ages. Make scripture say what it doesn't say at all. So he hoped that he could back Jesus into a corner. Because in effect he was saying, since you are the son of God and you trust God's word so much, as you've just shown me, you know, in this first temptation and your reliance on God, to provide you with physical bread, then why don't you prove the truth of his word and jump from here? Now, remember, they're standing on a pinnacle at the temple. After all, he says, after all, Jesus, your father promised in the word, back here in Psalm 91, that his angels would bear you up with their own hands. You know, he would not let any harm come to his beloved son. So his implication is, since you won't use your power to help yourself, you know, by turning stones into bread, let your father use his power to help you. Just think how sensational that would be, Jesus. Everybody in Jerusalem would see you fall from this temple, and then they would see your angelic rescue, and in no time at all, everybody in Israel would know who you were, because surely they would acknowledge that this was the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, which said the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. And so, you know, you, you will immediately be accepted as the Messiah. But the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, did not come to earth to dazzle people through sensationalism, did he? Why did he come to planet earth? To go to the cross, to save the lost. <clears throat> he wasn't going to establish his kingdom by a display of his power and a display of, out, you know, an outward show, which is always what people wanted. They, want, they love the show. They still do. Uh, he came to earth to go to a cross, so he would have no part in this cheap sensationalism, which there's so much of that going on within Christendom today, isn't there? You know, anything. Let's have fireworks and a, let's have a, a, a carnival, you know, to draw the crowds. Jesus didn't ever do that, and he doesn't expect his church to do that either. He will have no part in that kind of cheap sensationalism. We need to show the world we're different. You know, we don't join the world to draw the world. They're looking for something different. We need to show them holiness. And so, again, he unsheathed his sharp two-edged sword, and he quoted this time from Deuteronomy 6.16 when he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan had tried to imply to the Lord Jesus that as God's son, he had a right to put his father to the test. However, you see, Jesus knew that to put his father to the test would be a demonstration of lack of confidence in his father. If a person has full confidence in someone, you don't put that person to the test. You don't need to. You have full confidence in them. You don't try to to trip them up by testing them. I'm going to see if my husband really is faithful, and I'm going to test him. No, if you have total confidence, you don't need to do that. I don't know why I'm picking on husbands today. (laughs) <laughs> the, the reason that teachers give their students tests is why? <laughs> because they really don't have full confidence that their students have learned everything that they're supposed to have learned. So they give them a test. 
Jesus did not put God to the test because to do so would have shown some element of doubt in his father. And to doubt God is to sin. To doubt God is to sin. Furthermore, if he had jumped from the pinnacle of the temple, he would have disobeyed God's word. Because as Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6.16, we are forbidden to tempt God. We are forbidden to test God, tempt him. So Jesus would have been separating himself from his father by both his sin of doubt and by his sin of disobedience of God's word. You see? And if he had done that, of course, um, Satan's goal would have been accomplished because Jesus would have sinned and then Satan would have proven that he was greater than God. Because God promised man that he would send a savior. If Jesus sinned, God's word is broken. And therefore, Satan is superior to God. All right. So you see what we have here. Um, The first temptation suggested what Jesus should do for himself. The second temptation, temptation suggested what God ought to do for Jesus. We're tempted in the same ways, you know, what we should do for ourselves or, you know, God really should do this for me. And then the third temptation is the worst of all. It's the most wicked because it was the suggestion of what Satan could do for Jesus. Do a lot of people turn to Satan? I mean, if they want instant popular, I think of some of these rock stars and Hollywood characters. They've sold their cell, soul. What did I say? Soul. <laughs> Sold their soul to the devil. They've sold their soul to the devil. And yeah, they have instant success and fame. And But what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Let's look quickly at the temptation to obtain things by worshiping Satan, verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, I love this, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Again, by some kind of supernatural means, Satan took Jesus to an exceeding high mountain. That's still the other picture there. Let me catch up. Um, And from that spectacular vantage point, he showed him all the great kingdoms of the world. And that would be all the great kingdoms, past, present, and future of the world. And notice what else it says he showed them. All their glory. He showed them him all their worldly glory. And then came his temptation. He said, all these things will I give thee if you just do what? Bow down and worship me. What he was saying here was, I am the God of this world. And you notice Jesus doesn't deny the validity of that offer. Because Satan is the God of this world. And he, ha- he has all the kingdoms of the world to offer. So Jesus never refuted the validity of that offer. But he said, uh, Satan was saying, I'm the God of this world and I can instantly give you all the kingdoms that I've just shown you. You don't have to wait to obtain the kingdom on earth. You can have it when? You can have it now. Isn't that the problem with people today? They don't want to wait. You know, don't sacrifice your future on the altar of today. Wait. Wait. 
wait. How many times does the scripture tell us to wait? Wait on God. Wait on God. And we get so impatient. Hurry up. I'm tired of waiting. He says, you can have it now. There's no real need for you to do it your father's way. His way is slow. His way is painful. Uh, you know, you can just accept my offer and, and you, you can have it all without the pain and without any work involved. Of course, that's a lie, isn't it? After all, he would say, I'm merely offering you what the Father has already promised you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me, and it's all yours, Jesus. Of course, this is exactly how he tempts you and I and people today. You know, we can get it all now. It's possible to cut a corner here and shade a little bit of truth there and get our heart's desire. And that, that's, uh, that's where happiness will come from. So the great tempter of man and the counterfeiter of God and the father of lies, as Jesus called him, makes it appear that what he offers is basically what God offers. He loves to say, after all, God's going to give it to you sooner or later anyway, you know, but my price is so much easier, less painful and cheaper. No crosses to bear. You know, why follow Jesus and, and bear a cross? Deny yourself and all that kind of stuff. No crosses to bear, just get, just get the crown. Come my way. It's a lot easier, and you can have it now. In reality, however, Satan's price is ultimately so much higher. Because what is his price, ultimately? The loss of your eternal soul throughout all of eternity. If Jesus had succumbed to Satan's final temptation, which, of course, he couldn't do, because why? Because he's impeccable. But if he had, he would have disqualified himself as our Savior. Instead of redeeming the world, he would have joined the world. You see, people would then have said about him, he saved himself, he cannot save us. However, because infinitely greater is Jesus Christ, the creator, than Satan, who is merely one of Christ's created beings, don't ever doubt that. Do not believe what Mormonism teaches, for example, that Lucifer, Satan, and Jesus Christ are brothers, putting them on an equal basis. That is a lie, a total lie. Christ is the creator. Satan is merely a created being. So because he is infinitely greater, he again, once again, you know, whipped out his invincible, piercing weapon to silence his relentless, wicked foe. And this time he used Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14 when he said, for it is written, first of all, of course, he said, get thee hence, Satan. And then he said, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. That reminds us of what? The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God has strictly forbidden the worship of any other god with a small g. Jesus had had it up to here, right? Now he's had 40 days of continual temptation, and then these, these last three, and especially this last one, my goodness, bow down and worship you, he'd had it. And so because Satan's power is only by way of God's permissive will, when Christ commanded Satan to leave, what did Satan have to do? I get chills when I think about that. Get thee hence, Satan, and Satan had no choice. It was over. He had to leave, and leave he did. However, Luke tells us that it was only for a season. You know, he's relentless. He would be back, and of course, throughout the rest of the Lord's earthly ministry, 
right up to the cross, Satan tempted him to, um, to sin. But praise the Lord, he was never, ever successful. God, as always, this is the Genesis 50-20 principle, God took that which was meant for evil, and what did he do with it? He turned it for good. Those temptations in the wilderness, those and all the others that the Lord faced during his life, aided greatly in the demonstration of Christ's utterly holy, sinless character and person. They assisted God, you see, in proving that his son is worthy to be, or was worthy to be, our sin's substitute and our savior. And they also, his, his victory over temptation, also served us as an example. You know, how we too can overcome temptation. So, it's 1130 on the dot. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we just again come before your presence and thank you for the powerful word of God that we have access to in this country. And may we never, ever take it for granted. May we be ever diligent students of your holy word so that we may become masters of the sword, just as our Lord Jesus was, so that we may use it to resist the devil and cause him to flee from us. No matter, Lord, how urgent or important a need in our lives might appear to be, I also pray that we would learn to wait upon your heavenly provision for us. May we learn to wait on your time schedule and your will, knowing that our own self-efforts can't bring us good or glory to you, but we just need to wait patiently upon you. And Lord, may it never be our need to prove your faithfulness by testing you, And may we instead focus our efforts on proving our own faithfulness by trusting you, trusting you again to supply all our needs in your will and in your time. And finally, Father, may we never compromise with the world and with what Satan has to offer, because everything he has to offer us is only temporary. But what you have to offer us is the eternal heavenly state when we shall inherit the kingdom with Jesus Christ. May we never, Father, settle for the cheap substitute of happiness which our adversary offers through this world when we can have the real and the eternal happiness which you offer through the cross of your Son in whose impeccable name we do pray. Amen.